Well, I'm really excited to be here. I'm actually really excited about this passage. I don't know about you guys. This is one of those passages I'm like really glad is in the Bible. Um, I think it's because uh, the, there's somebody who's asking Jesus a question I think is good for us to know uh, as Christians. I mean, he goes to Jesus and he asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? And if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, chances are you believe that this life is not the end, right? That there is a life to come that is available to us as believers. And so it's a good question. It's good to know how we inherit eternal life. But what's kind of interesting or maybe even tragic about this story is that we see this young rich man come to Jesus and with this curiosity and almost vigor uh, seek out the kingdom of God, right? Heaven itself. But then when he leaves, we notice he leaves disheartened and discouraged. And so for the sermon today, I want to talk less about exactly what we must do to inherit eternal life, but I kind of want to talk about what obstacles or what things often might discourage us from the pursuit of heaven, from the pursuit of the kingdom of God or God himself. And so there's only three things I recognize, Lord willing, this will be a fairly short sermon, And um, we'll just go through what three things I think often hinder us from pursuing the kingdom of God as we see in this passage. A shout out to the scripture reader. You did a good job. You conquered the mic. Uh, We're actually only going to focus on verses 17 to 22. There's a lot of good stuff there. And you covered all of it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But we're only going to kind of focus on 17 to 22 for today, the rich young ruler. And so the first thing that I... Uh, believe often hinders us from pursuing with vigor and excitement eternal life in the kingdom of God is when we fail to recognize who Jesus really is. That's my first point. When we fail to recognize who Jesus really is, I think if the rich young man truly understood who Jesus was, it's possible his story may have ended differently than it did. I mean, I think he, he thinks he knows Jesus, right? I, I think in his mind, he feels confident that he understands this Jesus he's talking to. I think in his mind, he feels confident that he kind of has this guy pegged. But I think uh, we see this because of verse 17, right? He does two things that are interesting. He comes to Jesus and says he bows before Jesus, and then he says, good teacher, before asking him the question. So he bows, and he calls him good teacher. And so this shows us that he's not completely unaware of this figure he is interacting with. Like, he has some idea that this guy is important, has prestige, is worthy of honor, right? So he has some knowledge of Jesus. But as we read as an audience, what we recognize pretty quickly is that his knowledge is only partial knowledge. It's incomplete. It's not full. So although he has an idea of Jesus, he doesn't fully grasp the glory of the person that's ahead of him. And so he has a picture, but it's still in black and white. 
And what's tricky about partial knowledge of something or someone is that it actually can be more dangerous than not knowing at all. And I say that, you know, I think because it can produce, I say, false confidence. Or partial knowledge can kind of curb your uh, desire or enthusiasm to really thoroughly investigate something. If you feel like you kind of have it figured out already. The example I give is not a perfect example is, you know, all you know, I went to Wheaton College. And it wasn't until I graduated that I realized what kind of people uh, Wheaton College attracted. I mean, it was a small school, so you kind of were acquainted with everybody, you know. And, and so I kind of knew most people in my grade, at least. And afterwards, you know, I would talk to my friends about those people, and I would mention uh, those people to my friends. And every once in a while, they'd be like, yo, did you know that person's dad is, like, the CEO of Microsoft? I'm like, what? Like, Bill Gates? You know what I'm saying? Or did you know their mom invented chairs or something? You know what I'm saying? Something like that. But like, you're laughing, but literally I knew a girl who was like grandma or grandpa invented baby carrots. And I was like, I thought God invented baby carrots. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how she invented before God did? But I, I, like, those are the kind of people that go to, to Wheaton. I was like, this is amazing to me. You know what I'm saying? And so it, it was interesting because it was so shocking. I wasn't aware that a lot of the people that I had acquaintances, I had interacted with were like, Heirs to billion-dollar like companies. I'm like, I could have dated a couple of you know what I'm saying? But anyways, the point is that uh, for me, I had these interactions with them, and it would have been easy for me to really know who they were, but I didn't. Because I think a lot of times I thought I had them figured out before I even met them. I think for a lot of them, I had seen them from afar or heard stories about them, and it kind of enabled me to put them in certain boxes. This is generic Christian white male one. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is kind of who I think this person is. And it didn't make me dig deep into their lives when I actually encountered them. And so you see how my partial knowledge led me to actually prejudge who they were to the point that I didn't fully take advantage of knowing them when I could have. Again, some of that, you know, funding. Anyways, so it's not a perfect analogy, but in a similar way, I think the rich young man misses an opportunity to intimately know this man, Jesus, because in his head, he already figured him out. He settled from what he had heard. I'm sure he heard from other people. Hey, you should bow when you see him. He's an important person. Hey, you should, talk, you should call him good teacher. I'm sure he's just the stories he's heard or he's seen him, right? And he settled for that in his head so much so that when he gets to Je- imagine this is Jesus. And when he gets to him, his priority is not to get to know him more, but rather to simply get something he wanted from him. Did you see that? There's something he wants that he's trying to get from Jesus. Rather than saying, let me get to know this man more. And so his knowledge is incomplete. And we know this further because of what Jesus says after he calls him good teacher in verse 17. Verse 18, uh, Jesus replies, why do you call me good? Only God is good. This is a confusing verse, isn't it? 
I mean, for a lot of us, we, we, we kind of know the end of this story. We know that we have the answer sheet, right? And so we know that Jesus is God. And so it's weird that he almost seems to, like, separate himself from God. Anybody ever, ever been confused about that? Like, what is he trying to say? And there's a lot of different interpretations, but the one I kind of like is that in a way, he's actually testing the man. He's testing him. And he's testing to see if the man really believes what he's saying. The best analogy I could kind of think of, I don't know if this is a good one or not, um, but a lot of you guys know I've been going to Beloved for like uh, 20 years now, and at this point I, I say I'm just like half Korean. That's what I say. And I picked up a lot of random like Korean things. One thing I've learned from people is that if you're talking to, I think, an older sister, uh, you call her Ani. Is that right? Is that wrong? This killed my whole analogy. There's a word you, you say. I thought it was Ani. Clearly that's wrong. Um, which might explain the rest of my story more, actually. Um, but I wanted to try it out on somebody. And so with his older sister at Wicker Park, right, and I was hanging out with a bunch of, like, us, and I was like, and I called her Unni. This makes so much more sense now. But <laughs> let's pretend that's the right word. What happened was everyone laughed, kind of like you did. And she kind of gave me this look of, like, you shouldn't call me that. Um, and what I thought the reason was, um, <laughs> killed my whole analogy. Anyways, um, for me, what I thought it was, was that she thought I didn't know what that word meant. She was right, right? And she, she thought that even if that was the right word, whatever the right word is, which, what is it? Nuna. Okay. Nuna. Maybe I call it that. Whatever the word was, Right? She knew that I didn't really know what I was saying. I didn't know the tradition behind it. I didn't know the history behind it. I mean, you didn't even know how to pronounce it. Pronounce it. Pronounce it. Um, anyways, and, and for her, what she was almost saying was like, if you don't quite get the implications of what you're saying, you shouldn't say it at all. And to a degree, I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying that when you say good, you're making a divine proclamation. When you say good teacher, you're saying that I am God. And if you don't actually believe that, if you don't actually understand the gravitas of what you're saying, don't say it at all. And in verse 20, it kind of helps because what, is, what happens? He just says teacher. Did you notice that? He stops saying good teacher. He says, oh, right, teacher. And it shows us that he doesn't actually think that Jesus is God. And so Jesus almost was justified in his suspicion that he should not use that word if he doesn't understand what it means. So this just goes to show us that his awareness is truly incomplete and that he has failed to recognize who Jesus really is. And it made me wonder in my own life, the times when I fail to recognize how great Jesus is. And I wonder in the church if there are times where we fail to recognize the true majesty of the Jesus we proclaim. Is he just a gifted teacher with good moral suggestions? Or is he actually the one that out of nothing made the very foundations of this earth? And if so, what should that mean? 
And so what would happen if the rich man was as curious about what he could learn about Jesus than he was what he could learn from Jesus? And the more and more we sit in the passage, doesn't it become clear and clear that for him, Jesus is just a means to another end? Uh, for him, he's a resource to get something else he wanted. I thought of a story I heard once of this farmer who found this hunk of iron, and he used it as a doorstop for, I think, 30 years. And after 30 years, for some reason, his curiosity um, was risen, and he uh, reached out to a geologist, a professional rock inspector, who came and told him that this hunk of rock that he was using as a doorstop was actually a meteorite from outer space that was worth $1 million. And so for 30 years, he had a magnificently valuable resource that he failed to properly study and learn more intimately because he thought he knew what it was. He settled for the picture in his head. He simply fit it in the mundane rhythm of his life. And not knowing that this valuable resource could actually open up more opportunities in his life than he ever imagined. And I wonder how often the church treats Jesus as a hunk of iron, the means to an end, rather than the end itself. One of the stories I love the most is of Job. And Job is somebody whose life was truly a roller coaster, wasn't he? up and down and up again. And at the end of his story, he has this conversation, this encounter with God. One of my favorite scriptures is he says, I had once heard stories about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I love that. Because if you're like me, you have settled for the stories of God. The picture our parents have given us, the picture our pastors, our, our Christian books have given us, and you've heard and you've heard and you've heard, but when is the last time our church can proclaim we've seen God again in a new way that challenges the picture in our heads? And so if we truly want to pursue with vigor life after death, I think we cannot fail to recognize who Jesus is really is. Second thing, we often fail to recognize who we really are. I think if the rich young man really understood who he was, his story might have ended differently. I think once again, he thinks he knows he, who he is. He thinks he knows what he's good at. I mean, verse 19 and 20, uh, Jesus tells him, you want to inherit eternal life? Okay, uh, all the commands that God is giving you in the Old Testament, do those commands. What's the guy say? I've been doing those commands. Like, since I was a kid, I've been doing those commands. That's, that's his response. He, he feels confident that he knows himself. And I think this is kind of relevant. I think more and more today in, in our modern society, there, there's this emphasis on knowing yourself. Like, we really like the idea of us having this great self-awareness. I, I remember actually last week, I was talking to somebody from staff, and I was trying to do work, and she kept distracting me, and she kept asking me, she was like, have you ever taken um, the onion gram? 
I was like, what? She's like, the onion ground. I'm like, no, I don't really like vegetables. I don't. She's, like, she's like, no, 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 it's like a personality test, apparently. Like, you, you get a score from one to nine, and it tells you this and that, and I'm a three, I'm a two sometimes, and my wings are like this. And I'm like, sitting there like, I have no idea what this girl's talking about for 45 minutes, you know what I'm saying? And for me, I was like, first of all, if you got a three out of nine, like, why are you bragging about that? Like, shouldn't you try to get a higher score? But, like, second of all, I was like, it's just amazing to be, like, how passionate people get about this, right? Before it was Myers-Briggs was, like, the, was a thing, and I don't know, all these different things. And I feel like y'all are laughing, but if I ask a lot of you guys, you give me all the different numbers and letters that you got from your person, like, I'm a 3, 12, uh, R2-D2, like, you have all these different, like, combinations of stuff that, like, the, I'm like, I just want your name. Like, what's your name? You know what I'm saying? But, like, it's so important to us now in our culture. And I think we can almost appreciate that this young man seems like he has high self-awareness, like he knows who he is. If I had to guess what words he would use to describe himself, I think he would say, you know, successful, accomplished, competent. He's a good rule follower. I kind of get type A vibes from him, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he's referred to as a rich young ruler in a lot of passages or other translations. And you might think he maybe inherited some of it, but I have to think he must be pretty successful. Like he must be pretty high-functioning. To be young and to be ruling and authority over people, to have kept his money, he must be a pretty smart, competent person. I think this is a man who believes he understands himself and plays to his strengths, and because of that, is so used to getting everything he wants. But we know at the end of the story, he leaves empty-handed and discouraged. Why? I mean, it's almost like humorously obvious to us that he actually has a very inflated view of himself. Like We, we know the standards that Jesus has. Like when it says, uh, do not kill, he means don't be angry with your brother in your head. When he says do not commit adultery, he means don't have lust over somebody. When he says don't dishonor your parents, I mean a lot of things, right? And chances are is that this young man has done these things. And so still he doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite understand his awareness is only partial rather than full. And first of all, I said I don't think he even understands that he has weaknesses. It makes sense. It's more fun for us to focus on our strengths than weaknesses. Any of y'all ever do the strengths finders test? I had to do that for Wheaton and, and on staff. And it gives you like your top five like strengths or core motivators, something like that. And I used to joke with my friends that I wanted to do uh, the weakness finders test. You know what I'm saying? You just list, list like your top five weakness, like just roast you, right? Like you're awkward, you know? You're vegetarian. Like I don't know what they would be, but like this top five weaknesses. But I'm like, no one would ever take that test, right? Like, who wants to take that test? And so the truth is that we're, we are often woefully unaware of our flaws. Like, we focus and focus on what we're good at, but are, we're, like, blind to, to our flaws. And I think, you know, even for me personally, like, whenever there's times where someone or something is trying to expose to me what I'm bad at, I get defensive, angry. 
Right? I can think of literal times in my life to this day where I was eight years old arguing with my sister. And she says, David, you don't know this, but you're stubborn. I said, no, I'm not. And I ran upstairs and closed my door. Awkward, right? Or my mom saying to me, right, David, you don't know this, but you're impatient. Remember a friend I was driving? We were having a fine, cordial conversation. And I was talking about how, you know, I like to kind of get in debates or discussions sometimes. I'm like, I think I'm really good at listening to other people's opinions, even when I don't agree. She goes, no, you're not. I was like, what? Like, what do you mean? She's like, no, I, th- I, she's like, I think if you don't always value that person's opinion, that you become a bad listener, you kind of tune them out. In my head, I was like, that's a stupid opinion. I'm not listening to that. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I was like, where did this come from? Like, I was, I was shocked. And it's almost humorous to think about it now because I'm like, it's so obvious to me the ways I'm stubborn and, and the ways I'm impatient and the ways I'm a bad listener. It's so obvious to me now, but at the time, it was like, no one ever said it to me before. I, I just didn't see it. And I almost mourn, like, the people I must have hurt, right? People I must have devalued. Like, people I must have not loved well because I was so woefully ignorant of my weaknesses and flaws. I'm actually grateful that God in his mercy, like Jesus in this story, is always trying to send us people or things that will reveal to us the ways we fall short. Not to shame us, but to bring us to a place that he cannot bring us if we are not willing to change. A place that we will not see if we, like the young man, refuse to be honest about who we are. So first, I think we see this young man is not aware of how much he's actually failed. But secondly, I don't think he's even completely aware of his strengths. More uh, specifically, I don't think he's aware of the limitations of his strengths. He knew he was successful. He knew he was competent. He knew he was pretty good at following rules. But I don't think he realizes that those strengths were not enough to ultimately achieve what he desired, eternal life. The only thing worse, I would say, than not knowing your strengths is not knowing the limitations of your strengths. It's not knowing when your strength will run out. It's not knowing when your strength has reached its end. I mean, how many of us can think of times where we genuinely put in our best effort We gave it our best shot. We acted in what we thought was our strength, and we didn't get the result we wanted. Didn't get the grade or the promotion or whatever the output we were desiring didn't come true. I can think of lighthearted examples of times I've taken uh, girls on dates, and within the first five, ten minutes, I try to, like, make them laugh, and they don't laugh. And I'm like, I'm a poor pastor. If you don't think I'm funny, I got nothing else. You know what I'm saying? That's all I got, Right? Or even serious examples of times I've studied and prepared and practiced sermons, and I've come up here, and it felt like I just bombed. Like it was bad. And people weren't engaged, and they were falling asleep, bringing pillows to the seats. And it was just almost like, this is not going how I thought it was going to go. And in those moments, right, anybody have those moments like that before where you act in your strength and you kind of don't get the result you thought you were going to get. And we get almost so insecure and we're so, like, vulnerable, we really only have two options. I think one, either you say, my strength has limitations. 
like my jokes, I guess, aren't funny to everybody. Who would have thought, right? Like maybe I could practice and prepare as much as I want, but ultimately the sermon's efficacy is not dependent on me. Like we could just admit that. Or kind of like this young man, we could not. Maybe he, like us, often blamed everything else. Oh, the girl has a bad sense of humor. Like, well, that's a good joke. You know what I'm saying? Like, you should have laughed at that. Oh, the church isn't as spiritual as me. That's why they didn't quite get my sermon. That's why they didn't land, right? And I think, like this man, we can think, I'm good. And in this passage, Jesus is so gracious because he's trying, he asked him this question or, or, or telling him to follow the He's trying to expose the man. And still, he doesn't get it. He thinks he's good. If I can be real for a second, I think a problem at times in the young, especially urban Christian churches, we really don't understand the limitations of our strength. Or put another way, I don't think we understand how little God is impressed with our gifts and talents that we value so much. I think we know in our heads, especially if you go to this church, you know in your heads that works will not save you. You know that theology. But I think deep down, you think when we, when we get to God, he's going to be a little bit impressed with our resume. Someone asked me last week, what do you think God will say to you when you see him? The Bible kind of suggests that we will be having to give an account for the resources he's given us. He said, what do you think, what, what kind of questions do you think he will ask you? Do you think he'll ask you, are you funny? Do, do you think he'll ask you, did you produce so-and-so thing at your job? Do, do you think he might ask you, did you highlight things well when you read your Bible? Were you eloquent when you prayed? You use those big words I taught you. Do you think he will ask you that? And I think, we, like we said, we know, oh, no, that won't get me into heaven. I think a lot of us... Are, think we're going to be able to plant our resume in God's hand and be like, I know it won't save me, but you're kind of impressed, aren't you? I, look at, you said that volunteer with the children, you said that right there? You said, I did it, oh, I, you know, I preached right there, you said. And like, God's going to be impressed with us. And we forget that Paul is like, it's like offering filthy rags to God. Somewhere else he says, it's like doo-doo. You don't use the word doo-doo, but I'm a associate pastor, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word doo-doo. It's a stronger word that he says. It's like saying, God, look at my dude. It's impressive, isn't it? He's like, no, it's nasty, right? But, but, but we have this idea that our strengths have no limitations, even in earning us some brownie points with God. I think in a similar way, this rich young man did not see that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that all his strength and his striving could not earn him the entry into heaven that he desired. He couldn't uh, recognize the desperate state he truly was in. He wasn't able to see that his gifts and merits did not aid his salvation. Without Christ, his strengths were utterly meaningless, that he was desperately in need of help. And so he was at risk and missing out on eternal life because he could not recognize who he truly was. Lastly, we fail to recognize what is really at stake. I think if the rich young man 
truly understood what was at stake, his story might have ended differently. I mean, when you think about how it did end in verse 21 and 22, it's kind of peculiar, actually. Uh, I mean, the story simply goes, there's, there's this man who asked Jesus how to get to heaven. And as we talk about, he has a lot of problems, right? He doesn't recognize who Jesus is. He doesn't see how great he is. He doesn't recognize uh, who he is. He doesn't know how bad he is. But notice that Jesus is still gracious to him, right? He doesn't correct him and say, yo, don't you know that I'm God? He doesn't correct him and say, don't you know that you're a sinner? He kind of plays along. Oh, you, oh, you don't have to call me good. You don't, to, you don't have to call me God. Oh, you did all those laws? You know, word, you did all of them? Oh, that's good. Good job. Right? He plays along. But then in verse 21, he says the answer to the guy's original question. He, he tells him how exactly to get to heaven. In his grace, he answers his question. And what happens? The man says no. Like he, he just, he leaves. He's discouraged. So put simply, what happens in the story is a man comes to Jesus to ask him the cost of getting to heaven. And when he finds out the cost, he says, that's too much. It's not worth it. And what that tells me is that he thought his earthly life and pleasures on this earthly kingdom was more important than the experience he could have in the life to come. It's simple. It tells me he failed to recognize what was really at stake here. He didn't understand what he had to gain from giving up his current riches. And so it's crazy how he could be so short-sighted, right, to risk living a good life in the kingdom of God for now. I'm tempted to be frustrated. Like, he's so close, right? His heart is almost there. I'm tempted to be angry. How can you be so short-sighted? Don't you understand how you should invest for the long term and not just the temporary? I get frustrated. I get angry when I read this passage sometimes, but that quickly turns into fear. Because it doesn't take long for me to realize, aren't we the rich young ruler? Like, not even abstractly. When you think about the rest of the world, aren't we the rich, young people with authority and influence? Is, Is this not us? And it's funny, when I would hear this passage preached as a kid, the preacher would kind of go in and, exegeted, and he would always, almost always say, I'm not saying at the end of the sermon, I'm not saying that you have to give up all that you have. You ever hear that? They always say that. And even as a kid, I would be like, but what if God is calling you to give up all that you have? Like, what if God is saying, stay in Chicago when you don't want to? Or move from Chicago when you do want to? What if God is saying, change your career? Change your social uh, circle of influence. Give up the dream that you had. What if he was saying that? Not hypothetical, not in an abstract, spiritual, just in our heart. In reality, what would happen? And for me, when I think about how much I cling to this world, I'm afraid that I'm more like the rich young ruler than I want to admit. 
And believe it or not, I don't actually say all this to discourage you, but to show you how even the church does not always understand what our heavenly reward will be and how much greater it is than any experience we could have on this earth. Oftentimes, I have to remind myself that the kingdom of heaven is not about gaining more material things, like being richer, having better food to eat, right? being able to fly. Like, I don't know. Like, it's not about gaining something. It's about gaining someone. Gaining someone who will make me feel loved. Gaining someone who will make me feel wanted. Gaining someone who will make me feel joyful. Gaining someone who will make me think in new ways. Someone who will make me laugh in new ways. Gaining someone whose love is not fickle. Gaining someone whose presence is always available. I don't know about you guys, but the most painful nights I've had is not when the food is scarce or, or, or the money is low. The most painful nights I've had are the ones I felt alone and isolated. Like I had to earn people's love. The nights I felt like my life had no purpose or no meaning. So I don't know about you guys, but when the Bible tells me that there is everlasting joy in the presence of God, there is fullness of peace and rest and comfort and assurance and companionship and laughter, I want that. Even though I have to sell all that I have, I want that. Even though I have to admit my faults and the limitations of my strength, I want that. Even though I have to pursue Christ and try to grow in my knowledge of God daily, that's what I want. I personally don't want to settle for anything else. So my prayer, my desperate prayer for this church always, above everything else, that we will not fail to recognize all the things that God is trying to show us so that we will inherit eternal life with him. Let's pray together.